Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance, economics, finance, and investment, and folding it in. Michael McKee to international relations. Mike, do we dash to the election now? All the newspapers have election articles this morning. Yeah, and there are polls out, and it's going to be the silly season starting now. It's Labor Day that everybody starts to focus on what's going to happen in the election. And one of the questions, uh, well, it, it sort of folds into two questions uh, uh, that people have, is how does it affect business decision-making? Do you sit on your hands? Do you yeah. invest while you wait to see? And then how does it affect the central bank? Do they sit on their hands because they don't want to get in the middle of the election campaign? Uh, it also seems to affect other people, um, like uh, Vladimir Putin, who seems to want to take sides in this whole thing, uh, which is why we have Bob Hormats with us, uh, vice chairman of Kissinger Associates and a longtime uh, State Department uh, treasury official, um, the man who knows. Um, I know you were talking with Tom earlier on uh, – uh, on surveillance television about this whole idea of Russia being involved in the uh, in the U.S. election. Um, do you think they are actively working to influence who the next president is, or are they just sowing mischief for mischief's sake? It's very hard to say. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that they're intervening in our uh, electoral affairs. Uh, exactly who's doing it, I don't know, but it's hard to imagine it could be done without the acquiescence of the of the government and of Putin. Uh, whether it is to discredit the electoral process or to elect Trump, uh, who has expressed uh, a lot of uh, admiration for Putin, is very hard to say. But in either case, it's highly disruptive. And Obama called him on it yesterday in his press conference and said he raised this issue. He did not want get, to get into a cyber war, but he said if there were one, the United States has a lot of offensive and defensive capabilities and more than any other country. And at some point, the United States can't simply say we don't like this, can't simply protest. The United States is going to have to take some actions. What they are, I don't know, but I don't think you can simply take this lying down. A foreign country, Russia in particular, interfering in the American electoral process, particularly if it's on behalf of one candidate uh, over another, it seems to me is totally unacceptable and requires a very stiff American response. What that will be, I leave to those in Washington who are more familiar with the technology that we have to deal with it. But deal with it at some point, we may well have to. A shot across the bow, as it were? I don't think you can simply take it lying down. This is the credibility of the American electoral process. If <clears throat> Americans think uh, it's not credible because of intervention by another country, uh, it discredits the, the right. whole electoral process. And if it's in behalf of one candidate or another, that's particularly harmful. And we haven't really had that 
uh, in my knowledge, for, for a very long time, if ever. And uh, Obama indicated we had the capability of dealing with it. He didn't want a cyber war, but he indicated if, if, if there were one, we had the capability, right. both offensive and defensive, to deal with it. <coughs> so you can't simply do nothing indefinitely. Uh, I hate when you walk in the studio, uh, Ambassador, because you always try it in a book that I have to blow everything up and read immediately. Harry and Arthur... It, it sounds like a Billy Crystal player, you know, a movie or whatever. It's not. Harry and Arthur's what no one mentions. I go back to the Atlantic Charter, 1941-ish. But seven or eight years after that was President Truman and Arthur Vandenberg, the senator from Michigan. Yes. And they began our internationalism. Do we risk losing that internationalism right now? We are on the cusp of losing it, and there are a lot of Americans who don't fully understand it. That book, to me, was very, very important in in helping to to reshape or shape my thinking about what we should be doing now. The Republicans and Democrats on most issues were at odds, uh, and and violently so, very very strong uh, antipathy between Republicans and Democrats on a whole range of issues. In 1948. In the late 1940s, right, 47, 48, 49. And uh, the, the country was very partisan, and a lot of people were very isolationist. Vandenberg himself, a very strong Republican, was very isolationist. He turned around because he concluded he had to put country over party. And he and Truman together devised the Truman Doctrine to support Greece and Turkey. NATO was the result of the Vandenberg Resolution, uh, creating the Marshall Plan. Vandenberg and Truman worked together on this. And they understood that you needed to have strong alliances. You needed to have a strong international economic policy for security and for domestic reasons. You talked about uh, Thomas Jefferson and his view that uh, an informed electorate is a precondition for a successful democracy. And you wondered how in this uh, crazy world of social media, et cetera, how do we get an informed electorate these days? This troubles me a great deal. The current campaign, and indeed campaigns for a number of years in the past, but particularly the current one, is almost a fact-free environment. I mean, there are a lot of charges hurled at individuals, some of which are not based on facts, but are simply based on the desire to criticize one's opponent. And we need to have a discussion of the serious issues that face this country and face the world. Jobs, income, inequality, lack of uh, steady investment, uh, low levels of research and development, problems for small, medium-sized enterprises. All these things, I think, require that the American people hear the solutions, the substantive solutions that the candidates have, and then at least debate them. They may not agree with them, but at least have a conversation about substance. That's how you get an informed uh, electorate, treating the campaign as a series of reality shows and uh, lots of invective doesn't produce an informed electorate. And, and it does trouble me because the next president has to find the support at home to govern, has to have a mandate, and people have to be informed of what they think in order to give them the kind of support for their thoughts, for their policies to govern You raise a really good point. Dueling polls out lately, uh, and and certainly a a national vote is not the way that we elect a president, but if the poll were to finish 
about as they are with neither candidate getting a majority, uh, somebody just getting a plurality, <clears throat> perhaps in the low 40s because you've got independent candidates, what kind of mandate can they claim? Can they govern? Well, that's an interesting thing. I'm not so much worried about the uh, plurality that they get. Uh, Lincoln, after all, only won with something like 37 percent of the vote because there were a number of people running against them, him. But people knew generally what and, and very quite specifically on certain issues, what Lincoln stood for. So he had the ability uh, to use the vote he had as a mandate to do what he ultimately did. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt won very heavily over uh, President Hoover in his first election. Um, and people had a general idea of what he wanted to do, although a lot of the specifics he kept open. But he had a mandate at least to make major changes. So uh, the, 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 the size of the vote, you know, with Roosevelt a large vote, Lincoln a, a small, relatively small vote, it's more what people stand for and being able to explain to the American people what they stand for so that when they come in, they say, look, I've got a mandate to make these changes. I think at this current environment, there's so little substance that it's hard to see what the mandate will be uh, because there's so much noise level about individual yeah, invective. The key insight here, unfortunately, we're running out of time. Ambassador Hormaz, we've seen gridlock before. I mean, mm -hmm. Sam Rayburn, I mean, some would say Paul Ryan is no Sam Rayburn, but Speaker Rayburn saw gridlock, right? Yes. I mean, there's there's been a lot of gridlock in the past. I think it's going to require, unfortunately, um, continued uh efforts by the candidates at this point to, to win, and then what they've got to do uh, to win, and, and, and it may not be pretty and it may not be substantive, but they, that's the way this campaign is rolling out. But uh, there, there needs to be at least well, some shift towards substance, and when they get in, they really have to focus on okay. the substance. Bob Hormetz, thank you. No, rhetoric doesn't solve problems. Thank you so much. For Kissinger Associates, Robert Hormetz. Hormats with us of Kissinger Associates, Ambassador Hormats, of course, serving uh, within the present administration and working with Secretary Clinton on a linkage of economics into our State Department and international relations. Some of that was from his Fletcher School. We now welcome uh, the Dean of the Fletcher School, Tufts University, Admiral Stravitas. Uh, Admiral, wonderful to have you on with Ambassador Hormats. And I think the thing that, that, that so gets my attention with the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, which is many talk international, few actually do it, and it's stunning to see the international reach of Fletcher School going back before World War II. Thanks. Uh, it's great to be on and also with uh, one of our most prominent and distinguished alums, uh, Bob Hormatz. You know, I'll give you a current example, Tom, Please. from a, a place we don't think about a lot, and that's Latin America and the Caribbean. So Dilma Rousseff is just impeached, biggest muscle movement in the world to the south in decades. The chief justice of the Supreme Court who presided over that is a Fletcher graduate. Chief Justice Rick Lewandowski. And the second one is Colombia, where we're about to finish up a 60-year uh, a right. insurgency. The president of Colombia is a Fletcher alum, Juan Manuel Santos. So, yeah, we're out there. What are you teaching different within the new isolationism of America? 
Well, I'd love to hear Bob Formats on the economic side of that, but we're very focused on cyber and how that's changing the construct globally. We're focused on bio, and we're taking a very hard look these days at Africa as a region. So there's three yeah. quick hitters. Well, do you agree with that, Ambassador, or is the dean off the rails on that? No, he's I mean, right on the mark Should on we that. be doing Kissinger Diplomacy 101? Well, I think, obviously, Kissinger Diplomacy 101 is sort of the bedrock of uh, diplomacy in general, but you have to modernize diplomacy for the new era, and cyber is critically important to this. I mean, just to give you a f two, three statistics, one, growth in trade has diminished over the last 10 years. Uh, international investment, cross-border investment has diminished. What's increased is international data flows, and cyber is really the backbone of that. And it makes us more efficient, but it also makes us more vulnerable, and it certainly changes diplomacy. So Jim is exactly right. That's critical. Bio is enormously important. It's changing things uh, in, in the healthcare field, and uh, we're also subject to more and more uh, types of transmission of disease across the border, and we have to figure out how to deal with that as well. So these are things that are very important. Fletcher is really at the cutting edge in these and many other things, and international economics, international business. Jim has done a fabulous job of putting Fletcher right in the front row uh, on dealing with the interaction between national security and international economic policy. The two are very yeah. close. Mike, Mike, I think they've gotten like six shameless plugs in. Yeah, I'm going to ask, yeah, I'm, right. I'm gonna ask the Admiral, that's yeah, right. but what, what about Tufts football? You know, <laughs> <laughs> open against Wesley well, we, on, we, on the 24th. Well, yeah, yeah, just don't forget we won the NCAAs in, in soccer last year. <laughs> All right, so uh, there we go. Uh, so... Tufts is at the forefront of training the leaders of the future. What about the leaders of today in a world that has changed so rapidly, as Bob was just talking about, where cyber and bio and these sort of things uh, are, are coming to dominate much of the policy decision uh, framework that has to be made? Do we have people who understand this today, not that are learning, but that can come in and effectively manage these new problems. That seems to be kind of an issue. It, it, dipl diplomats and, and uh, generals tend to fight the last war, but uh, we're now looking at new kinds of wars all of a sudden. I agree. And I think that there is a bit of a generational gap uh, at the moment as people uh, far younger than I um, have these skills and this knowledge, but have not yet matriculated into the most senior positions. And a good example of this, again, is cyber, where we see, for example, this uh, stare down between uh, President Putin and President Obama over the weekend uh, in, in and around the G20. One of the key topics is cyber, but I would guess neither of them really understands in any depth how uh, that interconnection and the technology behind it. So we need to continue to push those younger people into high positions to make sure that we get that knowledge to unpackage these things. Yeah, well, that leaves it. I mean, here's a situation we were talking with Bob earlier about the whole Putin interfering in U.S. elections. And mm -hmm. he, he was saying it's obviously very serious. And what could be done about it, he will leave to those who understand the workings of it. Are there people <laughs> at state uh, or at the National Security Council who understand the workings of it, who can deliver an effective response? Or are we just all kind of flailing? at this point. 
I think there is, again, a gap between uh, the, the working technologically savvy level, which are people in their 30s and 40s, and policymakers in their late 50s, 60s, and 70s. And we've got to close that gap. It's a significant part of the challenge. That's one of the reasons we're doing a lot of uh, mid-career and executive ed kinds of programs here. The Admiral, folks, has taken a non-political stance, although he was vetted as vice presidential candidate for Secretary Clinton. Ambassador Hormat's serving both uh, parties in public service, most recently with the president and with Secretary Clinton. Ambassador, let me ask you the simple question. There's a clarion conservative call for a simpler time, a nostalgia for a simpler America that has to score points with all public officials. How does a progressive and liberal Democratic Party and a potential President Clinton adapt and adjust to this nostalgia. We may want a simpler world and a simpler America, but the world's changed and it's more complicated than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. And we have to change with it and understand that power is more diversified around the world. Technology is driving uh, economics around the world. It's driving national security. So we have to understand we're, we can't go backwards. We have to go forwards. We have to figure out how to master okay. these new changes and benefit from well, them. Well, we got two oceans and we're going to build a wall to Mexico, Admiral, <laughs> but then at the same time we want to show the flag, right? <laughs> well, I'm going to say, first of all, we can build a huge wall with Mexico, but here's a news flash. There's an ocean right, right to the left of it, and it's going to be easy to get around it. So we're going to solve these problems by coalitions and international cooperation. We're going to solve them by making the interagency work together better. And nobody knows this better than the ambassador. We're going to make it work by public-private cooperation. We're not going to solve these challenges in the cyber world with government solutions. That is going to require the public sector. So those three levels of cooperation, if you will, building bridges, not walls, uh, I would argue, are the way to approach these this brave, new, dangerous world that the ambassador correctly well, sketches out for and, us. And I would just make, make one other point where it's going to be, Jim's absolutely right, and it's going to be hard to have an effective international economic policy, which is critical to the United States from an economic and from a national security point of view, unless we're able to do something about income inequality and job growth here. So that the conundrum is you need a strong domestic economy with growth and better income equality here to develop the domestic support for a, an effective global policy. Right. On the other hand, you need an effective global economic policy in a world where 95% of the world's consumers live abroad. you got to have an export-oriented policy. you got to work with other countries, as Jim is saying, to deal well, with these global issues. <clears throat> to enhance our domestic policies. So the two have to work hand yeah. in hand. Ambassador Armitz, one more minute with you, and we'll continue with the Admiral. What did you learn at State on linking economics to international relations? You're, you've had a huge resume, huge experience, but even Bob Hormats must have learned something on the last tour of duty. Well, I learned, I learned a lot because I was, as you know, at State uh, years ago where the two were really quite separate, international economic and national security. There was a greater degree of convergence this time, and largely because Hillary Clinton really understood the interrelationship between the two and exercised a lot of leadership. But the key point is you need, when you sit down and talk about national security issues, you have to have the presence in those discussions of people who deal with international economic policy, the underpinning in, uh, in many cases of our alliances, mm -hmm. our national security alliances, is a strong set of 
economic relationships between the United States and its allies and friends no. in Asia and Europe and other parts of the world. The two complement one another. They're not separate. No. The better we understand that and the more they I mean, reinforce took, one another, the better it will be. And I learned well, you have to do that in an organizational and structural way. We haven't done okay. that in the past. What a wonderful conversation with Robert Hormatz of uh, Goldman Sachs and Kissinger Associates, now the former uh, uh, member of the Secretary uh, of State Department, rather, with President Obama. And Admiral Stavitas with us with the Fletcher School. Admiral, give me a Putin-NATO update. I, I guess the distinction is NATO was there, and that was fine. And then in, 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 the, in recent history, his NATO wanted to expand its borders east. About the time I became Supreme Allied Commander of NATO in 2009, we'd uh, begun to really crater the relationship with Russia. And it was a combination, Tom, as you say. NATO had expanded into the nations that were former Warsaw Pact allies of the old Soviet Union, Poland, Romania, Hungary, etc. And Russia was uh, shrinking back, in its view, toward its traditional czarist borders. This created the lash that came out from President Putin's invasion of Georgia in 2008 and really continues today with the invasion of Crimea. Mia just a year ago. There have been sharp critics of U.S. policy on the expansion of NATO. In, I want to look forward, but in hindsight, were we naive on how Russia would respond? I think it's fair to say we underestimated, and we really thought we were in a new, new world, that uh, somehow Russia was going to walk away from its uh, traditional expansionist and nationalist tendencies and simply want to join and become part of the table of Europe. That did not happen, to say the least. And that tendency was exacerbated by the rise of Vladimir Putin, who is a, you know, a former KGB colonel and an unreformed NATO hater. Right. So uh, we are in a difficult strait with Russia today. Okay, and, and folks, a fabulous article on this I'll put out, whether you agree or disagree, but gets the brain going. John Mearsheimer of Chicago, why the Ukraine crisis is the West's fault. I mean, he speaks there, Admiral, of liberal delusions. You were in the heart of this debate. When you were running NATO, essentially, did you say, what is America doing moving west to the Warsaw Pact? No, we should remember that this was very much at the full request of all of these countries. Every single one of them came and begged to join NATO. NATO didn't roll tanks into Warsaw in order to get the Poles to join NATO. And NATO's charter, its fundamental treaty, Tom, and John Mersheimer knows this very well, is based on open admission to democracies in the North Atlantic region. So it's pretty hard to walk away from that treaty. I think Mersheimer overstates the case. Okay, well, we'll put the, I'll put that out on Twitter, folks. You can see it's a fabulous uh, international relations exercise from Foreign Affairs. Uh, it is magazine. a thoughtful piece, Tom, yeah. but uh, can you also put out my Time magazine article of last week, which is a short how to deal with Russia four points. We'll do that. that. I think we'll do that. Stand alongside it. Okay, I love that idea. We'll put out Mearsheimer and Stavitas here, folks, out on social in a bit. Now, with that forward, I mean, there's a stark reality between the two candidates Do we reaffirm NATO? Do we reaffirm our foreign policy? Or do you look for a new new among our statecraft? 
I think we reaffirm on NATO for the pragmatic reason that it's good business for us. We spend $600 billion a year on defense, quite a bit. The Europeans spend $300 billion a year on defense. Russia only spends $80 billion, the Chinese $150 billion. Why would we want to walk away from the second largest defense spending pool in the world? I don't think we do. So I think we reaffirm NATO. But I do think we need to keep our lines of communication with Russia open. We can't afford to stumble into a full-blown Cold War. We should confront where we must, but cooperate wherever we can. If we switch to Asia, um, I, I, I can honestly say the relationship between the Philippines and the U.S. is in a most original state. Not that I'm an expert on it, but I mean, it. it it's extraordinary the last 48 hours. For those of you yeah. uh, that need to get Labor Day up to speed on this, the president of the Philippines used some very coarse language to describe the president of the United States. Your response, please. Uh, outrageous behavior on the part of uh, President Duterte and not characteristic of the Philippines or Filipinos, who I have, have a long history with, and they are incredibly gracious by and large. Um, he is a rogue political actor, in my view, and was extremely disrespectful to the president. His meeting was canceled. Um, he's not scoring any points doing that, and he needs to score points with the United States because the big winner will be China, which will muscle its way over the Philippines in the South China Sea. He's making a geopolitical mistake. He has a domestic agenda, which is corruption and crime. He's affecting or doing that agenda right now. Do you suggest that there is a Philippine infrastructure of advice to advise him forward? On his I think, international politics? I think that, as always, um, there's the top president-to-president uh, -president relationship, which has just cratered permanently, at least with President Obama. But there are also layer upon layer upon layer of diplomatic defense relationships. We have very strong military-to-military. -military, so, yes, there are many different channels uh, we can continue to find cooperation mm. with, uh, mm. with the Philippines. But at the top, it's poisonous at this point. I'd like to step back, Admiral, and go over a phrase that all in the media use, and frankly, all of us use it. Sometimes we'll go, geez, I think we have to go out to the Mets this weekend and show the flag. What does show the flag mean? Where did that <laughs> You were at War College buried, you know, in the history of our military. Is yeah. it show the flag from the U.S. Navy, or is it from Game of Thrones? Where did it come from? Uh, uh, nice try on Game of Thrones. Absolutely from the U.S. Navy. This goes back uh, a couple of centuries to the idea that um, by sailing a powerful warship armed with strong cannons that can attack coastal forts and discharge Marines ashore, you literally show your flag, and you are either saluted and welcomed into a port, or it's uh, general quarters, and we go to combat. So it uh, harkens back most recently in our history to uh, Teddy Roosevelt and speak softly but carry a big stick. The big stick he carried was the U.S. Navy showing the flag around the world. I, I mean, I, I, it goes back to the diplomacy of Roosevelt and the challenges that he faced in the Spanish-American War and the, the, the Philippines. Do we, do we portray a belligerency when we show the flag now? 
I think we have to be more subtle and clever in how that flag is shown. So maybe instead of sending a huge aircraft carrier, we send a hospital ship that's doing disaster relief. We make sure when a destroyer pulls into a small port in the Balkans that the sailors go ashore and work at orphanages. You mix that hard power, soft power message in a more uh, strategic way, Tom, and that balance of hard and soft power, some have called smart power, and I think that's the way you showed the flag in the 21st century. But you mentioned strategy. There's still statecraft tactics. What's the tactics of the next president of the United States in our foreign policy? <laughs> well, let's uh, let's let the, the electorate decide the gender, but the next president is going to have to, my view, do the same things we talked to Ambassador Hormats about. Focus on international cooperation. That's building bridges, not building walls. Secondly, we've got to get the interagency working more coherently together here in the United States. We still don't have a singular intelligence picture, for example. And thirdly, we've got to marshal the private sector. That means uh, using economic statecraft alongside mm. our more traditional means of showing the flag. Admiral, thank you so much. Admiral Stavridis, of course, with the Fletcher School and um, has been uh, someone who's brought forward our international relations discussion. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Uh, we are looking at what the Fed is going to do. We're looking at um, the impact of uh, the Fed's dual mandate. We concluded earlier that the jobs report with Bob Eisenbeis uh, showed that the, the job side of the ledger is is there for the Fed if they want to take it. The big question is what happens with inflation. And uh, the big question, this is sort of a division uh, in terms of inflation. One is uh, people looking for wage-driven inflation and others who say most, most of what's happened is commodities. Commodities went down in price. And that is why we have no inflation. Dennis Gartman is, of course, the uh, author uh, and editor of the Gartman Letter, and he follows all of that very closely. And so, Dennis, um, I assume you would be uh, someone who, who would uh, take the latter argument, that commodities have been the big driver in what happens, and as they go, so goes uh, the inflation numbers and therefore the Fed. Well, we have had a... a true deflationary environment in, in the commodity markets generally for the past several years. And luckily, uh, for those of us who are consumers, unfortunately for those who are farmers, that bear market continues in what I think are the most important commodities of them all, the grain markets. After all, wheat is still the largest employer of people in the world. People still eat livestock. People still feed grain and soybeans to livestock. People still eat bread and cake. Those are the major incumbent inputs into, I think, inflation, and they, they, we are growing e e preposterously good crops this year. Um, the previous largest crop, don't hold me to the numbers, but we're going to be very close, uh, for corn was about a 14.8 billion bushel corn crop. We're going to grow something in excess of 15.1, maybe even 15.2 or 3 billion bushels of corn. 
And if it weren't for ethanol, and I'm not a supporter of ethanol, corn prices um, would be down with a $1 handle instead of a th- low $3 handle. We're going to grow a a 4.1 billion bushel soybean crop. I think the largest we've ever grown before was 3.9 billion. Again, don't hold me to that, but the numbers are going to be close. I.e., we are growing at, at, at preposterously good crops. American farmers are extraordinarily good at, at growing every year more grain, drought in, drought out, good year in, good year out on the same amount of acreage. And it's putting downward pressure upon prices generally. Now we're starting to see collapsing livestock prices. Hog prices are falling off the edge of a cliff. Live cattle prices are falling precipitously in the course of the past two weeks. Feeder cattle prices are down. This is a real deflationary circumstance taking place in ag what? commodities. We need to pay attention. Dennis, what is the why? Why? I mean, we had a boom in agriculture. Is it a normal cyclical thing where guys like you don't bat an eye, or is there something different this time? Well, one, I think that the, the universities and the businesses in the United States have just done an ex- and the farmers have just done an extraordinary job in the course of the last 20 years learning how to produce more grain on the same amount of acreage. Two, the weather, whether you like it or not, uh, in this era supposedly of global warming, the, the growing conditions in North America, there have been some untoward growing conditions in Russia and a little bit of bad growing conditions on the winter wheat crop in Ukraine and Uzbekistan. But here in the United States and in Canada, this year has been extraordinary. Mother Nature has been very, very pleasant to farmers, and we have grown an extraordinary, extraordinarily large crop. The, the prices of the past several years have been high enough also to entice farmers to increase uh, uh, agricultural acreage, uh, no, no ifs, ands, or buts. That was going on. So you've had a, an increase in acreage and Mother Nature being extremely cooperative and the fact that technology has simply driven the, the greater abilities to, to produce the same amount or more and more and more grain on the, on, on the same amount or lesser amounts of acreage. It's impressive what we are able to do. Mm-hmm. How does this market then clear? Um, you know, do, do, do pri- if prices are going to collapse, are we then going to stop growing this impressive amount or are we uh, stuck in a deflationary pattern? I'm afraid we may be well stuck in a deflationary pattern, but the oldest rule in the book in ag commodities is the 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 great uh, the medicine for to to uh, do away with low prices is low prices. We probably will see lesser amounts of acreage drilled for winter wheat this coming year. This is now the planting season, or soon shall be for the winter wheat crop. My guess is that if we have corn prices remain where they are. Presently, we will reduce uh, gr- uh, corn acreage next year by several hundred, uh, by, by several millions <clears throat> of acres. Right. We'll probably do the same thing in soybeans. Yeah, Dennis, I assume both presidential candidates need to win ethanol states. Is yes. the whole ethanol date debate just on total pause until we decide who gets the free beer of the election? Well, I, I'm probably going to make several of my uh, of my best subscribers angry, but I have never been nor ever shall be a supporter of ethanol. I think it's a, a terrible, terrible circumstance, a very bad fuel. It's bad for the engines that it's put into. But uh, nonetheless, uh, it, it is still extant, and they have put the debate, which had come to the fore. There actually had been some discussion of a reduction in the ethanol mandate. That's off the table for right now. We will not hear anything about that through the rest of the political year, thank goodness. So through the rest of the political year, does it is there a chance this becomes an issue, or is it going to fly under the radar? No, 
no, it will not become an issue. There, neither candidate uh, and, and, and nor the only candidate who even might bring up the ethanol issue might be the Libertarian, and they'll do that only at the very at the margin. The the Republican nominee nor the Democratic nominee mm. shall yeah. ever shall ever pass through the ethanol question until at least mm. uh, they're one or two years into their administration, and even then it'll be at the margin. It has been a sporting year. The mathematics is AX plus BY plus CZ, and there's a Greek letter off to the right called Epsilon. Dennis Gartman's going to name his next dog Epsilon, traipsing out on the golf course with him. Dennis, have you ever seen a year like this in terms of whipsaw and belief and trying to come up with an intelligent guesstimate, and then you're totally crushed by this, that, or the other central bank theory? I'd hate to say that we've never seen one like this, but I don't really want to see one like this again. Uh, if you just take a look at a chart of the S&P over the course of the past several months, it's just gone absolutely sideways, mm-hmm. but it looks like it breaks out to the upside, so you buy it. You get stopped out. It looks like it breaks to the downside, yeah. so you sell it. You get stopped out. And it just is mentally wearying. As I like to say, there are two types of capital in the, in the world for traders to have. That which is in their account and their mental capital, right. and I think most of us are having our mental capital depleted rather grandly by the by the inexorable, slow, grinding, uh, and, and confusing circumstances that prevail. You and, betcha. And, and part of this, to the back two-thirds of Reminiscence of a Stock Operator, a book that we've all read six times, yeah. is the idea yep. of go to Florida, which is a classic moment in that book. Nowadays, when we're wired up and listening to Bloomberg surveillance five days a week, we don't have the luxury of going to Florida anymore, do we? It's, it is astonishing how the business has changed in the, in the 40 years that I've been writing my newsletter. Uh, now it is truly not just 24-7, it's 24-7, 365. There are no days off. There are no hours off. And you're right, there is no going to Florida. You cannot escape the news. And as a trader, as an investor, you're always listening to what's going on and making adjustments. Sometimes you wish you just had gone to Florida, put your orders in, given 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 percent stops, and, and watched what's happening. The, the, what I think is important here, and it and drives me crazy, is that the trend in the equities market still is from the lower left to the upper right. It still is breaking out to the upside. We may take issue with the fact that it's being driven by central bank monetary policies, but that is, in fact, the, the order of the day. And every time I try to fade it, I find out that that's the wrong thing to do. It, sometimes you just have to adapt the, the perspective of a four-year-old, look at the chart and say, which direction is that going? And it's going from the lower left to the upper right. So I guess you have to say, buy them. But it has been very, very, very difficult. Well, it, it, it seems to have changed completely the way the markets operate, because not only do you have constant real-time information, how do you separate out what's good and and what's bad. You also have computers doing much of the judging. So it's got to be a different environment. I mean, you talk about your many years. I don't want to repeat how many years in the business. <laughs> but it's if for somebody who started in a different world, it's got to be frustrating. It is. Uh, I don't mind the computers as much as everybody else does, because they're, they're simply taking historical circumstances into effect and making judgments. They are utterly passionless about it. I, I, I don't mind them. They offer liquidity to the markets, and a lot of people will take uh, issue with uh, the, uh, the fast trading that the computers generate, but I do think that they're taking the place of, of the specialists on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange who simply no longer exist. So I don't argue with them, but I, I do find it a, a bit more difficult to, 
to deal with markets where the information comes at you so fast, so quickly, so efficiently, and we're all trying to understand what it means. I try to be the, the sieve uh, through which the important pieces of information uh, yeah. show up, and I want to show to everybody here, this is what I think is important, <clears throat> but it's still nonetheless extraordinarily difficult. Yeah, Dennis, I'll pick up Monsanto just because they're in the news with the Bayer uh, merger. Yeah. St. Louis, it's not the Monsanto that Dennis Gartman and I remember from our Ute, but they deliver a modest 2% yield with a 14% five-year dividend growth. Is the dividend growth model done? The Wall Street Journal writes that up today. Do you believe that growing dividends has had its day just because everybody's on board the trade? Well, I think dividends are important, and I think growing them is indeed important. But what we have seen in the course of the past year and a half is that dividend stocks that were cheap a year and a half ago are now extraordinarily expensive. There is nothing except at the, at the margins where you're going to get 4 and 4.5 and 5% dividends. What used to be a Monsanto that did have 4% dividends several years ago is now, what, as you just said, 2.5%. That tells you how, how extended the stock market is. Nonetheless, it's still moving from the lower left to the upper right. And here's a bit of wisdom. It'll continue until mm. it stops. How do uh, central banks figure into that? Um... Oh, they are, they are the entire figure, aren't they? They are force-feeding reserves into the system, whether you like it or not. And, and, and the hard money people shall argue against it. But nonetheless, that's the reality. And as long as they continue to do so, and they'll stop when they stop, and they don't look like they have any intention of stopping at any time soon, as long as they're creating those reserves, and those reserves are not going to plant equipment and labor at any at any extreme uh, any extreme pace, that money on the margin yeah. is going to equity investment. That's what's going on, Dennis. Many people read you for the craft of the language. They kid you about shell and this and the other Gartmanisms. You have a fabulous phrase today: redeeming factors. We have redeeming factors in our economic data. What is the redeeming factor that Chair Yellen should focus on? I think the redeeming factor that she should focus upon is the fact that in the last employment numbers, the most important number that came out was one that people pay very little attention to, and that is that the average work week fell two-tenths of an hour over the past two months. And that is the rough equivalent of having lost 300,000 non-farm payrolls. People who had been working 34.6 hours are now on average working 34.4 hours. That's a disturbing number, and I think that uh, Dr. Yellen should pay very inordinate, extreme yeah. uh, attention to that number more than the non-farm payrolls number itself. Now, August has a, a reputation for being a difficult seasonally adjusted month in which uh, payrolls get revised up usually by a lot. So how much attention do we really pay to that data? Um, the, the payrolls number gets revised. The, the hours worked tends not to be that seriously revisable, but the payrolls number itself, uh, August is a, uh, a, a, a very uh, a preposterous month for revisions. We'll probably revise last month's number that 155 yeah. or whatever it is, to 200-plus by the time it's done. So we shouldn't be surprised mm -hmm. by that. But is the average work week, does that number get revised dramatically? Rarely. Dennis Garvin, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Mike, did you know that we got through a discussion with Gartman without mentioning NC football? Uh, hey, we did, four, beat the, we did beat William and Mary. Give us a chance. <laughs> <give us, laughs> yeah. 48 to 14, William and Mary. <laughs>
Well, Bill, as we as we lovingly refer to them here, Bill and Mary. Bill, well, they beat Bill and Mary, but Bill and Mary is a very good school. They 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 play FCS football very well. So oh, let's not, stop let's not it, Dennis! Them. Please, we got we, we have four <laughs> journalists over in Bloomberg News that had to be sedated this morning. They're the tribe. The tribe went under to NC State. Dennis Cartman taking it out on William and Mary. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.